0: Nighthawks presents If you're looking for a laugh, make sure to visit the Nighthawks host's YouTube channel, I'm Not Here. There we have commentary videos on bad content, bad movie reviews, and bad book reviews, and some skits. I'm gonna teach you how to properly wash your hands. Step 1. Turn on the water. Step 2. Wash thoroughly. Step 6. Don't think of the man without a face. You don't know who he is. You will never know who he is. Step seven, dry your hands with either a paper towel or a hand towel. That's I'm Not Here on YouTube. The link will be in the description. And hey, thanks for listening. Hello everyone, welcome to Nighthawks, the show that is sure to keep you up at night. Today's a special episode, it is half biography and half analysis, mainly because we will be talking about the life, death, history, and legacy of H.P. Lovecraft, a great influence on many of the people that we talk about on this podcast. Also stay tuned because there will be an announcement made on the Nighthawk's second season. Now let's take a deep dive into the mind of H.P. Lovecraft, the master of cosmic horror. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on August twentieth, 1890. He wrote a lot of weird fiction and horror fiction, and he died from cancer at the age of 46. During his life, he was practically unknown. In his early life, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born into one of the oldest families in Providence. His mother was an aristocrat, uh, with rumors of inbreeding throughout his history. His father was a traveling salesman that wasn't diagnosed with syphilis, but suffered from it severely. A lot of H.P. Lovecraft's stories deal with regular families that hide secrets. His early life is a great depiction of his life becoming an influence in his writing. When he was around three, his dad had a nervous breakdown because of his disease and was locked up in an asylum. He died five years later, but Lovecraft never got to know him. His mother moved them with her father, Whipple Van Buren Phillips, an incredible mustachioed man. He had some party tricks, and those were mainly just making some scary stories at parties off at the top of his head. HP had trauma. Night terrors of faceless men made him tremble for days, and the fear paralyzed him enough to avoid attending school. Lovecraft still read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe and even some scientific journals. The books were thrown across his grandfather's library. In 1898, when he was just 8 years old, he had already declared himself an atheist and a scientist that made his own magazines on geology. March 27th, 1904. Whipple had a stroke, and he had died the next day. However, he mismanaged all of his finances, and his family was forced to move out into a cramped apartment. The 14-year-old boy was already planning to drown himself in the Barrington River. This was the day both members of the family turned insane. 1908, HP had a breakdown related to the tragedy of his grandfather's death. He couldn't go to college or high school, so he turned away from society and locked himself away with his mother. However, the relationship turned sour. She would begin calling him grotesque, but also begged him to never leave her side. In 1913, the two turned into recluses and read nothing but pulp novels. He had developed a social anxiety and a fear of the cold. It's safe to say that his life was depressing. No friends, poor, and living in a toxic relationship with his mother, and a fear of being forgotten. That was until an unlikely hero saved him. A romance novelist by the name of Fred Jackson. H.P. read The Argosy pretty masochistically, as he hated Fred Jackson. He wrote hate letters to him, all in rhyme. It was childish. However, in 1914, Edward F. Das, the president of the United Amateur Press Association, had liked the poems and offered Lovecraft a job. The 24-year-old loved the job, and he wrote essays, composed poems, and published magazines while working there. Finally, he left his mother and made friends at work. If it wasn't for them, no one would have pushed him to write fiction. In 1917, Lovecraft wrote Dagon, a story about a shipwrecked sailor that found himself trapped in an island with the remains of a strange civilization. Dagon was a smaller piece, but still had a lot of the signature Lovecraftian characteristics in his story. This is the moment that Lovecraft turned into a writer. In 1919, his mother had been confined in the same asylum her husband had been, until May 1921, where she died. He moved in with his aunts, Lillian D. Clark and Annie D. Phillips Gamwell. And after all of this, however, he met Sonia Haft-Green, that was known for her publications, but also owned a hat store in Boston. She was introduced to the newly orphaned Lovecraft at UAPA conventions. During their relationship, Sonia had given him a book to study on how to have sex because of how overly disinterested he was on the subject. But they did like each other. On March 3rd, 1924, they secretly got married, and he informed his aunts only by letter, moving in with her in New York. In 1924, his life seemed to be perfect. His works got publicized all around the country, and Sonia's hat business was booming. Except Sonia was ill, and her hat shop had been shut down. The two were broke. In 1925, Sonia moved to Cleveland to take back a job. Lovecraft moved into an apartment in Red Hook, one of the worst choices he would ever make. Now, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. He was a horrible racist and a raging anti-Semite. In 1912, he wrote a poem calling black people beasts and semi-human figures. Here's a description of New York City he wrote.
1: The population is a mongrel herd, with repulsive Mongoloid Jews in the visible majority, and the coarse faces and bad manners eventually come to wear on one so unbearably that one feels like punching every goddamn bastard in sight.
0: Uh, believe it or not, he was actually friends with Robert Bloch, who wrote Psycho. Robert Bloch was, of course, a Jewish man. In 1925, the hatred and dread he had towards the foreigners turned into horror and genuine phobias. This influenced his work with unknown forces and unbelievable aliens that might have been a way for him to cope with being surrounded by non-white faces. In 1926, he wrote back to his aunts for help. They helped him out and let him come back to Rhode Island, however with the pretenses that him and his wife wouldn't be together anymore. They separated and they never saw each
1: other again. A monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head, whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on the hind and forefeet, and long, barrow wings behind.
0: That was Simon Whistler, from the YouTube channel Biographics. This is the description of the monster that towered over not just all who saw it, but over horror itself. Cthulhu. It had become one of the most important creations he had ever made. Star of a short story, The Call of Cthulhu, it was his first creation since moving back to Rhode Island. An elder god biding his time in the depths of the sea, waiting for the moment humanity will awaken him and destroy the world. Even a region on Pluto was named after him, Cthulhu, however at the time Cthulhu seemed destined for obscurity. He had little hope for the creature, it was nothing more but a means for a paycheck and some fame, but those friends that he made in 1914 turned into a circle of pen pals. Those friends were Robert E. Howard, Robert Bloch, and August Derleth, who will have more importance shortly. They loved Cthulhu, and were inspired to write fiction in the same universe. They all created what was known as the Cthulhu Mythos. It was one of the reasons why he's so well-known today. The same time this mythos grew, Lovecraft went through his most productive streaks as a writer. Moving back to Rhode Island almost energized him, as he created a few of his best works. The Color Out of Space, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and The Mountains of Madness, creating something no reader had ever experienced before, with amazing landscapes of demonic and otherworldly, unfathomable designs. In 1932, Lovecraft's aunt died. Lovecraft was devastated. Him and his other aunt were forced to move into a small apartment that just made him slide into a life of poverty. As much as he was working on his best works at the time, they were not selling well. Lovecraft had too much integrity, or just too much stupidity, to only take on ghostwriting work in order to survive. Ghostwriting took all of his final years. He had to eat expired food when he could to survive, and that was when he could even find food to eat. The only thing he did keep up was writing letters for his group of friends with commitment that he'd never had before or after. He sent over 100,000 letters. In 1936, he almost gave up in fiction. His only story since 1933 was A Shadow Out of Time, a late classic, and The Haunter of the Dark. His sudden lack of interest in the alien worlds were actually based off of his illness, what he called The Grip, which was actually cancer. His cancer ate his insides, and he refused to see a doctor. Robert E. Howard also committed suicide. A great friend. This made him spiral into a depression that he never recovered from. In 1937, he had written nothing but four poems over a year. He was in a constant agony and was consumed by black thoughts. He stayed in the cold and gloomy apartments that reflected his own characters and the only doom that he had created. March 10th, 1937, he checked himself into the Jane Brown Memorial Hospital, but the cancer had already gone too far beyond what could be taken care of. Five days later, on March 15th, 1937, he passed away. He probably wondered what his life would have been like after his death, and how his work would have been remembered. He would probably assume that his stories had been forgotten, but now let's get back to August Stirlith. He was a writer friend in that circle of the Cthulhu mythos. After HP had died, he gave Lovecraft a literary send-off. He created Arkham House Publishing, that made hardcover books of his stories. Sadly, none of them sold well. But here's the thing, Darleth might have been a hack writer, but he was a loyal friend. And he also had very deep pockets he kept the company afloat, pumping out book after book even translated into different languages. The French translations became hugely popular, as France had already loved Edgar Allan Poe and all of his works. Lovecraft reappeared on the scene, as new films also made horror popular. Rosemary's Baby, Britain's Hammer Horror films, there was a resurgence in weird fiction. People flocked to read Lovecraft. In 1974, Batman writers took the name Arkham for the asylum that was in their fictional setting. Stephen King was also inspired from Lovecraft to start Carey, his first novel. Fans also raised enough money to give his small little headstone a large monument. Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro are just a few names that were also heavily inspired through Lovecraft. Erica Henderson spoke on the Guardian newspaper.
1: Lovecraft made a world where humans are alone, floating on a rock in a terrifying larger universe that we cannot possibly comprehend because our time in it has been so short and we are so insignificant compared to the horrors from the Cthulhu mythos. So much of modern horror is based on that idea. We wouldn't have Ghostbusters if it weren't for Lovecraft. And that's the best argument that I can think of for his work.
0: Nighthawks had been known as an analytical horror podcast, but we've had some plans for our second season. As we finish recording our last few episodes and are halfway through season one, we wanted to change things up a bit for our next season. Cape Lock, a Nighthawks podcast, follows the story of Christopher Glass. He's a journalist investigating people with strange memories of a town that doesn't quite exist. But as he raises questions about a recurring dream that people keep having and a faceless man keeps appearing in his mind, the small town of Cape Lock might be more real than he ever would have imagined. We hope you join us for our little story. With the full cast of characters and new voice actors, this announcement is exciting, and we hope that you come and visit us in Cape Lock. Now, from his work, let's see what we can learn about horror. I talk about Lovecraft and Lovecraftian horror, but what exactly makes a Lovecraftian horror story? In The Color Out of Space, a strange meteorite lands by a farmhouse mutating it into a hellscape. The Mountains of Madness is written like a report from an Arctic expedition that unearths things better left undiscovered. Mathematics also became something to fear. Geometric shapes start to wreak havoc on the mind of anyone who beholds them. Lovecraft at the time also wrote stories about the indescribable horrors as many had feared, about the subatomic particles that were becoming so popularized at the time, things that you couldn't see, couldn't even understand. It was scary. That's what we call on this podcast, Contextual Horror a kind of commentary on what's going on with the author. We discussed this on the Perfect Blue Podcast. You guys should totally check that out. It's down in the description. And these are a few stories, but what do they say about horror? Well, they say a lot about humanity. About our understanding and about our yearning for what we want to understand. What we fear is the unknown, and something that's prevalent in a lot of his work is what we don't know. We don't know what color the meteor is. We don't know what the large creatures look like. We can't comprehend it with our minds. But that idea, that possibility that there's something out there that squanders our existence, that makes us understand how insignificant we are, that's what's terrifying. It isn't the creature. It's what they represent. We're trapped on a floating rock. We're stuck here. So we give our life purpose. We create our own truths. But in reality, the only truth there is, is nothing. That we are nothing. That our existence is nothing. They've lived out there lifetimes before us. They control their lives. They've controlled our lives. We don't control our own lives. We can eat this and that, we can write this and that, we can marry who we want, and we can love who we can't. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. And I think that Lovecraft gets rid of our humanity that way. We're humans, we're animals with wants and needs and emotions. And while it's simple to be reminded that that's by another human, it's a completely different story to have another being, a creature that you can't even fathom, tell you that for you. Not just tell you, but show you. It'll take over your mind. It'll kill those you love. It doesn't matter, because to them, you're nothing. It's like an animal at a farm. You're there to die, and the farmers will live on without you. You're nothing. And that's what scares us. We can tell each other that we're just animals, that we run on instinct, but when someone else tells us that, when SOMETHING ELSE tells us that, it's difficult to believe that it's true. So you go insane. Everything you've thought of, everything you've created in your mind had just been proven wrong with what's in front of you. The only thing we can truly understand is the reaction that the characters have towards what they see. They look inward to try to find and understand their outward surroundings, as seen in The Call of
2: Cthulhu. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity. And it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of the associated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality, and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age.
0: That was Moises and Sergio Velazquez from the YouTube channel Screened. Existential dread is a rare fear, and it is difficult to represent those in other mediums, which is what makes Lovecraft's writing so unique. His brand of fear was so new at the time that it can never be replicated. In Junji Ito's Uzumaki, he fixates on the spiral, a geometric shape that makes people go insane over, much like HP's stories of non-Euclidean geometry. At the end of that story, the ending arguably depicts the main characters realizing how insignificant they are, and they succumb to the spiral. There's no way to stop it. They've already gone mad through the whole story trying to fight it, but it was no good. It kind of makes sense how a lot of the great cosmic horror stories also fail at the visual medium. Ito had used the geometric shape as a way to combat this, but still, something with such an indescribable color would be difficult to create. Here's an excerpt from The Unnameable.
2: Good God, Manton, but what was it? Those scars. Was it like that? And I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. No, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere. A gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes, and the blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination, Carter. It was the unnameable.
0: There's a few interesting things that go on here in in his writing, such as working a few tangible things here and there, but more abstract descriptions as well, it kind of makes the whole thing elusive. What's scarier than the monsters are always the abstract themes. What is the limit of our humanity? What happens when we go beyond it? The stories that Lovecraft makes, the stories that influence so many others, let them create similar tones of dread, fear of the unknown, and a general understanding of what it's like to be human. In a way, taking away our humanity is what makes us feel the most human feeling of all. Existence. It's a feeling we all have, but we can't describe it, and we can never grasp it. Thank you so much for listening. Good night, Nighthawks, and make sure to read something that'll keep you up at night. This has been a Night Nighthawks production. All music used will be in the description, as well as the editing softwares. Today's episode was written by Jonathan Calderon and performed by Jonathan Calderon. Make sure to follow us on YouTube at I'm Not Here and Night Talks. Subscribe for more, and hey, thank you for listening.